You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35. If you have the uh, Pew Bibles, that is on page 29. Uh, it's, and there's the outline there that's listed. Genesis chapter 35. The title of the message is A Long-Awaited Homecoming. A Long-Awaited Homecoming. Well, Homecoming Week is something for students in school that is, can be very uh, exciting and meaningful. Uh, I remember being in high school, Homecoming Week, right? There's, uh, there's a, a dance, there's sometimes a parade, right? And there's a football game. I played football, so you're, you know, you're out there playing during Homecoming Week, and it's this big celebration. Uh, but then during halftime, as, as a football player, you go into the locker room, and you're in there while all the old-timers are uh, out on the field being honored, and they're, they're coming back. And the, you go to the parade, maybe. Maybe you're in the parade as a student, and uh, there's all the other classes are on these different floats, right? And, but you're on the football team float. And so you're not thinking about everyone else, right? For, for the homecoming week as a student, as a football player, it was, it's all about you, right? Like it's all about focusing on the things that you're doing and you're not focused on what it's really about, right? And I remember probably about 10 years after I graduated from high school, I was back in my hometown in small town, Argyle, Wisconsin, and I remember my dad was actually, my dad's here visiting, and my dad was on the, his class, uh, class float that year, and I was just standing there as a bystander, and like, what an interesting perspective shift, right? Like, oh, this is what it's about. It's about honoring those who have gone before us, right? It's about celebrating them. It's not about us, right? It's not, it wasn't about me at that point, but when I was in the other position, right, when I was in school, I was like, oh, this is about this is about us. This is about the, you know, the students, and this is about the football team. And that shift of just thinking, hey, this is about others, right? It's about those who have gone before us. <clears throat> and if we're honest with ourselves, we all struggle in this way, right? Life is just all about us most of the time. And even in our best moments, right? If we're honest, even in our best moments, there's something selfish in what we're doing. There's some selfish motivation or there's some battle with pride that we have, even in our best moments. And this was Jacob, right? We've been looking at the life of Jacob. Jacob was consumed with himself. He was selfish. He was a deceiver. And Jacob needed to be met by God. Jacob needed to be transformed by the living God. And we need the same thing, right? We need to be met by God, and we need to be transformed by him. If you're just visiting with us, kind of catch you up with where we've been, Jacob and his life over kind of these last 10 chapters, he's been running from his brother Esau after he stole the birthright, and he stole the blessing from Esau. He basically finds out that Esau, his brother, wants to kill him, so they send him away. He is on the run. He goes to his uncle Laban to find a wife, and then he's on the run from Laban after he deceives him and steals a bunch of animals and, and all this crazy stuff going on. And Jacob is also running from God, 
Throughout this whole story, Jacob is on the run from, from God. He's trying to avoid the God who called him to himself. And there's just been all this drama. But in chapter 32 and 33, which we've seen a few weeks ago, uh, God intervenes. God comes to Jacob. God wrestles Jacob to the ground. He touches his hip and puts his hip out of socket. And Jacob is changed. God changes his name. And God does a great work in him. So we saw that in chapter 32 and 33. But then we saw last week that even though Jacob is changed by God, he's not fully there yet, right? Both literally and figuratively, Jacob is not home yet. He still needs to get back to Bethel where he promised God he would go. But he stops and he takes this detour in Shechem in chapter 34. If you weren't here, you can go back and read it. It's one of the darkest chapters in all of Scripture. Jacob's daughter Dinah is raped and then her brothers go and murder the whole city of the man Shechem and all his, the people who are with him. So these bad things happen, but God is not through with Jacob yet. In our passage today, we're going to see basically a summary, an overall kind of summary. And this is kind of the end of what Jacob still is around in the rest of the story of Genesis, but he's kind of more in the background. This is really the big summary of Jacob's conversion. And I want us to see this as a story of not this guy who just lived thousands of years ago, right? Not this guy who we just, we can't relate to. He was this nomad who wandered around, right? He was the shepherd. I want us to see how Jacob's life relates to our life. I want to see how we can find ourselves as the people of God in this story, as those whom God has saved, as those whom God has called home and brought home to himself. To himself. So I hope this morning that we will see ourselves in this story. So let's dig in. Genesis chapter 35, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself to, to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, 
and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. The word of the Lord. Again, this passage here is a summary of Jacob's conversion. And we're going to be kind of looking at today, what does this mean? What does it mean to be converted? What is conversion in the Bible? What is it in our lives? And we're going to be looking specifically as, at what steps does Jacob take toward home? What steps does Jacob take toward home? And we're going to frame this around some questions, some catechism questions. They're actually printed here in your outline. There are four questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And last year, uh, for kind of our first year, October of last year to kind of the end of September uh, this year, we went through the New City Catechism, which is kind of a shorter modification of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But we are a confessional church. It uh, means that we hold to a confessional standard. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. So it has the confession and it has the larger catechism and the shorter catechism. And these catechism questions are really just a helpful way for us to kind of understand what the Bible teaches. And this section in particular kind of deals with this idea of what it means to be changed by God. What it means to be converted and have faith in him. And I think just kind of like we talked about the homecoming, right? Those, those who have gone before us, there's a lot of encouragement here in looking to those who have gone before us in the faith. Those who have spent years and years and years formulating these doctrines and these questions. These are important things, and it's important that we look back to those who have gone before us and glean from their wisdom. So the first question that we're going to ask is based off of question 85 there, the first question on your outline. What does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? We're going to ask, according to our passage, what did God require of Jacob that he might escape God's wrath and curse due to him for his sin? The answer is to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin. God requires of us Faith in Jesus Christ, that's the first thing. Repentance unto life, second thing. And the third thing is with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. Now that sounds like a mouthful and really confusing. It's okay, I'm going to explain it in a little bit. So the three things, faith, repentance, and what we call the means of grace. Faith, repentance, and the means of grace were what God required of Jacob and what he requires of us. So three steps toward home that Jacob took. The first step that Jacob took toward home is grace-dependent repentance. That's the first point there in your outline. Grace-dependent repentance. This whole chapter is all about God's grace, okay? you remember chapter 34, and if you were here last week, I said the Bible should just have ended right there, right? Like, we shouldn't even have a Bible about the people of Israel. We shouldn't have a history of the people of Israel after what we witnessed in chapter 34, right? God should have just said, I'm done with you guys. Jacob, I've given you chance after chance after chance to get it right, and you keep 
failing. You keep being a knucklehead, Jacob. I'm done, right? And maybe there's a book of some other family and some other history, right? But that didn't happen. The fact that chapter 35 of Genesis even exists is a testament to God's grace. That he is patient with his people, even when they sin, even when they fail, over and over. So God is not done with Jacob, and we see that right off the bat here in chapter 35. He says to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. In other words, God is saying to Jacob, go home, Jacob. Go home to the place where you vowed to me that you would return, that you would come back to, right? Jacob made that vow in chapter 28, if God will be my God and if he will provide for me, then I will go back to Bethel and I will worship him there, right? So God is saying, go home, go back home. It's been more than 20 years since Jacob made that vow. Again, just the patience and the grace of God. 20 years of stubbornness, of selfishness, of wandering. And God says, Jacob, it's time to come home. We see then another significant turning point in Jacob. Remember, we looked at how when he first went to meet Esau, he split his family into two, right? He was afraid that they were going to get wiped out. So he splits them in two and sends the people on ahead of him. But then in chapter 32, after God wrestled Jacob to the ground, after he wrenched his hip and he goes on limping, what does Jacob do? He goes out in front, right? He knows Esau maybe is still mad at him and wants to kill him, right? Jacob puts himself out there. He goes out to meet Esau, his brother, who he's been at war with basically for 20 years. He goes out and he meets him. So we're like, yeah, Jacob, you finally get it, right? In the end of chapter 33, he worships God. He builds this altar. But then we read chapter 34, and it's like, ah! The old Jacob comes back again, right? But here, in another dramatic turn, Jacob shows concern for the spiritual well-being of his family. Verses 2 and 3, Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob leads his family in repentance. First thing he says, put away the foreign gods. Put away your idols. Now remember back Rachel, she stole the household gods from her father Laban, right? So there's, and they, I'm guessing they're still probably with them in their possession, right? They had just raided the whole city of Shechem after they destroyed it. They probably came away with some idols and with some different gods that people worshipped. The first thing Jacob says, says is put that stuff away. Be done with that. Then he says purify yourselves. And this is language of, of worship to become pure. We saw the, the defilement. This is you know, an opposite of what happened in chapter 34. The defiling of Dinah. She was defiled by Shechem. And then her brothers would have been defiled by going in and touching all of these dead bodies. 
So there's un, uncleanness, right, among them. Jacob says, purify yourselves. And he says, change your garments, right? Put on new clothes. This is a symbol, this is an outward symbol of an inward change, right? To, to put on new clothes symbolizes something that God is doing. It's an inward change. And then finally, bury your idols. Put them away from you. The catechism question, what is repentance unto life? It's question 87 there, the third one down. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. I love that first line in the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. It is a gracious work of God that we can turn from our sins, that we can repent and turn to him. It's not something that we do on our own power. It's not something we say, I just feel really bad about myself right now, so I'm just going to muster up the strength and I'm going to turn to God, right? It's something that we are graciously enabled to do. It is a gift of God. I've shared a little bit from uh, this book before. It's in a a great series, The Gospel According to the Old Testament. There's a whole bunch of them written about a whole bunch of uh, different Old Testament books and different Old Testament characters. This is Living in the Grip of Relentless Grace, uh, The Gospel in the Lives of Isaac and Jacob by Ian Duguid. And here's what he says about Jacob and Jacob's repentance and about us and our repentance. He says, true purity of heart can only flow out of the life-changing power of the gospel. We are only set free to serve as we recognize more fully the true nature of the God whom we serve and bury the old idolatries that have tied us down. As in Jacob's case, burying our idolatries and seeking our hopes and dreams of blessing in the Lord alone will not be a single action, but rather a daily task of recalling God's mercy and grace, remembering his faithful promise to give us true blessing, and once again digging the hole and dumping our trash inside. That is why we gather together. That is why we confess our sins together in corporate worship. We do it here on Sundays as a reminder that we're going to go back out there and Monday through Saturday are going to be hard, right? We're going to need to confess our sins again on Monday, on Tuesday, right? All the way until we come back here next Sunday. It needs to be a daily process. Daily digging that hole and dumping our trash inside. And I've got news for you. No, I'm not the oldest person in the room, but this doesn't get any easier with age and with time, right? The longer you walk with the Lord, it doesn't get easier to dig that hole and dump your trash inside. In fact, I've found in my own life, the older I get, the easier it is to just kind of blow things off or just kind of justify my sin, right? It's crazy. I think I get tired sometimes of 
having to go out and pick up the shovel again, right? Like, man, I got I to gotta confess my sins again. I got to repent again. And it becomes wearisome. And the reality is, is that we never fully bury all of our idols, right? Jacob called his family to put them away, to turn away from those things. But we never, we never fully are done, right? The work of burying our idols, of putting those things underground, putting those things to death, it's never done. It's an ongoing process. And for us, you might be like, well, I don't have, I don't have golden statues sitting around my house, you know? Like, I'm not worshiping these household gods, right? But it's not those things, right? It's not actually the physical objects. It's not statues of gold. But it's things that we trust in instead of God. A lot of things that begin with the word self, right? I think it's foolish to believe that like we're more selfish now than people have ever been, right? It's foolish to say, well, we're more, we're more prone to selfishness because of all these different things. Sin is sin. It always has been and it always leads to a focus on self. But the difference, I think, between our generation, our time period, and others is the constant messaging that we hear from the outside that is focused on self. The constant onslaught that we are under, the intensity which with it comes to us on a day-to-day basis, right? Self-reliance, right? You can do anything you want to do if you just put your mind to it and you work hard, right? Self-esteem. Hey, I just need to be happy, right? And that's all that matters. I just need to feel good about myself. Who cares about all the, you know, whatever. Yeah, I'm sinning, but I feel good, right? Self-worth. Hey, I'm a, I'm a good guy, right? I'm not as bad as Hitler. I mean, I haven't killed anybody, and right? I'm pretty good. Even Christians, self-denial, Right? We're pretty good at playing that game, right? Well, I'm really, yeah, I'm really trusting God and I'm I'm denying myself. We're called to deny ourselves. But how easy in our hearts does that self-denial become the thing that we can, you know, walk around with our chest out? It's like, yeah, I deny myself. I really trust the Lord. I give things away. Trust me, I know that game, right? If we're not quick to get out our shovels when those, when those things creep in, if we're not quick to turn to God, all of those things are leading down the same path. They're all leading to a path of self-salvation, of focusing on ourselves, of trying to be right with God by just doing, doing the right thing. Even if it, you know, I mean self-esteem, like, it's not the worst thing to have a positive image of yourself, right? As long as it's coming from the Lord and it's not self-worth, yeah, I'm not, don't want to walk around and be like, well, I'm just trash, right? We have worth in God's eyes. But again, it's just that slight twist, right? Like Jacob, we need the saving grace of God that grants us true repentance. We need God's grace 
that allows us to turn from self and turn to him. So Jacob's first step home of repentance is followed by his second step home of grace-dependent remembering. And we see this in verses 5 through 8. Again, this is an incredible display of God's grace in the life of Jacob. As they journeyed in verse 5, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. After chapter 34, Jacob and his sons did not deserve this, right? I mean, God could have let all the other surrounding cities say, hey, watch out for, like, we better gather together and wipe these guys out because if they are up to what they're up to, we're going to be wiped out too, right? Instead, God graciously comes and doesn't allow these surrounding people to touch Jacob and his sons. Instead, he guides them safely back to Bethel, back to where God had graciously revealed himself to Jacob. And what does Jacob do in verse 7? There he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. In the Old Testament, altars were places of worship. They were places of remembering God, remembering God's grace. We've seen many altars be built so far up to this point in the book of Genesis. The first one is in Genesis chapter 8. After the flood, when Noah and his family come out, they, Noah builds an altar and he sacrifices animals there. It's a remembrance that God had brought his family safely through the flood. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, and Abraham built an altar by the oak tree in Shechem, which is really close to where they are here, where they're burying these idols. He built an altar. Then Abraham actually went to Bethel and built an altar there. Then in Genesis 22, Abraham builds an altar when God calls him to sacrifice Isaac. Okay, that was a dramatic picture that we saw there. Genesis 26, Isaac built an altar and worshiped and reminded, and God reminded him of the promised covenant blessing and the, the promise of offspring, the same promises that he's going to make to Jacob. At the end of chapter 33, Jacob built an altar at Shechem when they first arrived there, and he called it El Elohei Israel, God, the God of Israel. And that we saw was kind of a, a very pivotal moment in Jacob's life where it was no longer Jacob saying, well, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of my fathers, he was saying, God is my God. And now he comes and he builds this altar and calls it El Bethel, God, the God of Bethel. Well, you might be like, okay, big deal, right? Altars, like, I don't, I've never built an altar. I don't even know how to make an altar. Like, where do you start, right? Are there plans on YouTube or what? Like, we don't build altars today, right? We don't, we don't build altars. We don't sacrifice animals at altars. Like, this is very foreign to us, this whole idea of, of animal sacrifices and altars for worship. But what does it look like for us today to remember the grace of God in our lives? What does it look like to symbolically build an altar, right? A place of remembrance, a place of worship. And this, we talk about the means of grace. So kind of out of order of, of the, the three here um, and the way they occur. But the means of grace, it is... Something that we do to remember who God is, it's our worship. It's both a corporate thing and a private thing. 
So question 88 here is it's the last one. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer is the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, so the Bible, God's word, sacraments, baptism in the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So it means the way that we commune with God, the way that God meets with us ordinarily, we call these the ordinary means of grace, is the word of God, right? The sacraments and prayer. Now corporately, we gather on Sunday mornings, we read God's word, we pray God's word, we have it in our call to worship, we preach God's word, right? We pray together, we observe the sacraments together. So that happens corporately, the means of grace. But also it happens privately, right? We read our Bibles at home. We pray to God. Those things are important. That is how God connects with us, reminds us of who he is and what he has done for us in Christ. So we need to be a people who remember often, right? Because it's so easy to forget. When I talk to people about why do we pray and read our Bibles, it's not so we can like check off a box, right, and say, well, I did my deed for the day, right? No, it's because we forget so easily. I mean, how many times have you read a passage and you're like, like I've read this like 50 times before, right? Like some psalm or something. Like I never saw that, right? So you saw it, you just forgot, right? You turned away, you went your own way. It's so easy to forget and that's why we need that reminder. We need to celebrate what God has done in our lives by his grace and be reminded of those things. And we see that celebration in Jacob in the next section as his remembering is followed by his third step toward home. Jacob's third step toward home is a grace-dependent receiving. A grace-dependent receiving. And this is in verses 9 through 15. I love these verses here. This is really just kind of a great recap of Jacob's life, of God's promises that he made to him. Again, just a great picture of God's grace We see the name change that God changed Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. Jacob the schemer, Jacob the deceiver, Jacob the heel grabber. He changed his name to Israel. And when Matt was here a few weeks ago in chapter 32, talking about the meaning of the word Israel, it can mean strives with God or it can mean God prevails. God prevailed over Jacob when he wrestled with him. God changed him. God won the wrestling match with Jacob. So we see the name change. Then we see the covenant promise restated. This is a promise that has been given. It was given to Abraham in chapter 17. It was given to Isaac in chapter 28. And now God is going to reiterate that promise to Jacob right here. Verses 11 and 12. He said, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. He reminds Jacob of who he is, that God is the one who is powerful. God is the one who is mighty. God is the one who can do all things. And therefore, Jacob can trust 
in God's promises. Jacob can trust that God will fulfill his promises because he is God Almighty. Then he tells him to be fruitful and multiply. We saw this in the very beginning with Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. The promises, then then the, the command is given to Noah after they come off the ark. Be fruitful and multiply. Repopulate the earth. It's given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And we know that now this becomes kind of a new meaning, right? As the people of God, this covenant people who are supposed to fill the earth, who are supposed to be God's witnesses in the world. Then he gives, reminds him of the promise of nations that will come from him. He says, kings will come from your own body, right? Kings will come. You will get land. You will get offspring. We've been talking about all these things as we've been going through Genesis. And now it all kind of comes full circle in Jacob's life. His name is changed both individually and corporately. Jacob now becomes the representative head of the people of God. They are now called the people of Israel. Jacob finally becomes who God has intended him to be all along, both individually and spiritually, as the head of this new nation. And Jacob, in response to this, worships God. He worships God. Why is this so significant here? Jacob doesn't say, oh, awesome, like, I'm really cool. Hey, somebody start writing my biography, right? It's not about him, right? He turns the focus from self onto God. We need that same focus, right? We don't come here, we don't sing, how great is our self, right? We don't sing, Lord, I need me, (laughs) We sing, how great is our God, and Lord, I need you, right? It's not about us. This is the one time, the one time out of our week that we can come, gather together with other people, and truly turn the focus off of ourselves and put it on God where it needs to be. And this is an expression of faith in Jesus Christ. He is the king of of kings, the king from Jacob's line, right? Kings will come from you. Jacob and the patriarchs, they looked forward, right? They looked forward to Christ. They looked forward to faith in him. We get to look back. We get to look back on the cross. We get to look back on him and what he has done for us. So what is faith in Jesus Christ? Number 86 Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. See those words again. Whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. A saving grace whereby we rest, receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. So we talk about these ideas of faith and repentance. Faith and repentance are really two sides of the same coin. They're both, it says in the answer to the catechism, they're both a saving grace, right? They're both something that God does in our lives. They are both free gifts from God. So we repent, we remember, and we receive because God has been gracious to us in Christ, just as he was gracious to Jacob. Throughout his whole life, despite all his wandering, Despite all his self-reliance, despite all of his disobedience, 
Jacob finally makes it home to Bethel, the house of God. And God called Jacob here. He called him to come home, and he calls us to come home. If you're here today and you've never come home, so to speak, right? If you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ, that's what we want you to do, right? That's what God wants you to do. He wants you to come home. He wants you to turn from yourself and turn to him and come home. And maybe it's for the first time. Maybe you've never done that before. I'd love to talk to you about what that means. I know there's others who would love to talk to you about what that means. Turning from your sin, trusting in Christ by faith and faith alone, receiving and resting upon him for your salvation. And maybe you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a long time. And maybe you feel like you're just far from home, right? You feel like you're kind of wandering. You've been, maybe you've been struggling in your Christian life. The same call is there, right, to all of us. Come home, right? God calls us. We looked at the story of the prodigal son a couple weeks ago. God's waiting. Come back home, right? We are his children. He loves us. He wants us to return to him and to come home. And you might say, well, I've just, yeah, I've really screwed up. You know, I'm just too far away. I'm too far gone. Just as, as we come to Christ the first time, right? Just as we repent and turn to him the first time, it's still by grace, right? As a Christian, if you've wandered from home, it's still by God's grace that you can come back to him. It's still by his grace that you can return home. I want to look at that passage in Hebrews again that we read in our New Testament reading. Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 19 to 25. I'll end with this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, as he died in our place on the cross, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to our confession with hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is drawing near. The day of his return when he will come back for his people. And the question for us is, will we be ready? Will we be ready for his return? The first step is to come home, to return to him. Let's pray. God, you have been so gracious to us through all of our sin and our disobedience, through all of our wandering. You continue to pursue us. You continue to call your people back to you. 
And Lord, I don't know where everyone is at this morning. God, but I ask that you would draw each of us. Draw each of us to yourself. Whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the thousandth time. God, that we would come home, that we would return to you, that we would receive and rest upon Christ alone for our salvation. Thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your love, for your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.